0: From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners.
1: Good morning. It's Friday, February 25th, and you're listening to the HPS Macrocast. I'm Brian DeAngelis, your guest host today, filling in for Tony Frato, and I'm joined uh, by our our normal co-hosts and co-sponsors of this podcast, John Fagan and Brendan Walsh from Market Policy Partners. Guys, great to be back.
2: Great to have you. Yeah, the Boston Quorum is back on the Macrocast. I love
1: it. Always love the All Massachusetts Macrocast. <laughs> it's going to be a good spin-off series for us one day. Um, guys, a lot of a lot of big news, grim news this week with with Russia invading Ukraine. Um, so we wanted to bring in one of uh, our folks who, who has a ton of experience working on uh, US-Russian issues, spent a lot of time in Russia himself, uh, both through through school and worked and has lived in the country twice. So let me introduce Stratton Curtin, uh, a friend of the pod, uh, has been on many times. He's a managing director here at Hamilton Place Strategies. Stratton, welcome back.
3: Uh, thank you, wish it was under different circumstances. Nobody ever comes to people with Russian background when something good is happening.
1: That is a that is a fair point, but we appreciate uh, uh, you coming on and, and sharing some insights because I think uh, a lot of our listeners and a lot of folks have questions on kind of how we got here, what this all means for our economy, what this is could mean for us uh, us's economy. Um, so let me start there, Stratton. Why don't you um, kick us off, kind of? basically what's happened in the last 48 hours, but more so I'm interested in the approach the U.S. and Europe has taken with with the sanctions they imposed yesterday and where that kind of leads us in terms of ramping up more or, you know, bringing Putin hopefully back to the the negotiating table.
3: Absolutely. So at risk of recapping what our listeners may already know, um, in the last 48 hours, Russia has invaded all of Ukraine. There was a thought at first that they might be just occupying eastern Ukraine and the so called breakaway republics that they recently recognized. Um, But as of recent reporting, they're within a few miles of downtown um, Kyiv. So it is pretty clear that they are occupying the entire country. And I think just a few minutes ago, their foreign minister um, mentioned that their goal is to remove the puppet regime and install a neutral regime. So it looks like full on occupation and overthrow of the government. Um, In response, um, the U.S the EU and other partners around the world have started ramping up sanctions. It seems pretty clear that the approach they're taking is a tightening of sanctions rather than you know, cranking it up to 11 and starting there. The first day sanctions were relatively weak Um, They did full blocking of two smaller Russian banks, what a Russian economist I spoke with called tier three banks, um, along with some restrictions on sovereign debt markets and um, sanctions on individuals. And then day two, Germany um, agreed they weren't going to certify the Nordstrom 2 pipeline, another um, energy pipeline. And then the US went ahead and sanctioned the company that was working on that pipeline. And then day three, was a little heavier sanctions um, on Sberbank, but it's worth which is Russia's largest bank. But it's worth noting they did not do a full blocking on it, only a block in U.S. dollars transactions, and then a full block on the second largest bank, um, along with more sanctions in terms of individuals in Russia and Belarus. And this is a long-term play, but I was also told by you know the Russian economist I'm speaking with, this is one of the most significant things you can do long term is a block on um, technology transfers for high tech sectors. It's not an immediate play, but it is something that will hurt them a lot as as this goes on.
1: Great. Right. Uh, two big things and that I saw yesterday from Biden that that we didn't do. We didn't kick them off of Swift, or at least there was an agreement there. I think Boris Johnson and some others, wanted to go that far. The US, Germany, I think a few others did not. And we also really didn't go after oil and gas. And, and the Biden administration's take on that seems to be it could cause as much harm to US consumers in terms of higher gas prices in this inflationary environment than, than we want to tolerate. So, Uh, I'd love your comments on that. Is that what comes next if Putin doesn't back down or what are your thoughts there?
3: I think there's going to be a lot of pressure for that to come next. I think we'll probably see more financial sanctions um, before we see the sanctions on the energy market. Um, Russia's the number two exporter of oil in the world behind Saudi Arabia, Um, and they've been coordinating with OPEC, so-called OPEC Plus for years now, Um, so they do have the ability to hit the market. Um, We don't buy a lot from them directly, but with oil being a global commodity, the expectation is that if Russian energy exports just on oil um, go down that we will see price increases around the world, including for US consumers. And then of course, there's the much more tangible fear for the EU um, about gas exports. What I would say is, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It is probably their biggest vulnerability. I think the Russian federal government receives about 40% of their income from energy exports. It's about 70% of their export value is energy exports. Um, But on the other hand, so it is the biggest weak spot where you can hit them. Um, But on the other hand, there's no way to avoid um, impacts on other consumers, particularly the EU um, around the world. If you go that route, this, the SWIFT, The arguments against it, I find a little weak. Uh, The arguments against it are, well, if we kick them off SWIFT, they're going to find another way around it and probably start working more with Chinese financial institutions. That's going to happen anyway. Um, You know, this is, if you look at the Iran sanctions and sort of the safety valve that um, Chinese institutions played, I mean, that's going to happen anyway. Russia's been preparing for this for a long time, both geopolitically with closer relationships with China, but also if you look at, they've been... um, they've been lowering the amount of US dollars that they use for the reserve currency. We're not a big, outside of energy, a big trading partner with Russia. So I think that's going to happen no matter what. And I think SWIFT is probably the biggest thing that realistically is on the table right now. I think energy exports are going to be very, very, very difficult for us to make a decision on.
1: Brendan, John, let me bring you in here. Maybe we can take a step back. Walk walk us through what what Swift is for those of our listeners who who don't know and what it would mean if we do kick Russia off of Swift.
0: Yeah. So Swift is kind of the the rails through which companies pay each other internationally. Um, If you want to think about what happened is think about like your air conditioning system. Swift is the ducks that, that carry air in this case dollars across the world. However, I think it is a little bigger what we what we did by, by shutting off especially uh the two largest banks to US funding, that is a, a little bigger deal than people are making it out to be. The the basically U- US Treasury is the, the the unit that pumps out the air conditioning, the dollars. So th- these banks have no access to 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 dollar funding, which basically makes them insolvent. Um so they 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 can't send money over Swift anyways because they don't have dollars. Uh so so it is pretty it is a big deal what we did, but I totally agree with Stratton. We wimped out. We should have just sh- shut off Swift and made it that much simpler. And we also cut off Gazprom from from accessing, um, you know, uh, uh, debt markets. They, they can't New fund the markets. Market either. Yes. So they the only way they can fund themselves is to keep pumping and and, um, and, and sell that that gas, and natural gas, which conversely down the road could actually lower the price of, of oil because they have to... They have to over pump uh, right now to, to fund themselves.
1: Got it, John. Um, how are markets reacting to this?
2: Well, the the kind of classic playbook when you have the you know amoral, not immoral, amoral markets uh, looking at these you know awful scenes playing out on the TV, uh, and then you flip over to CNBC and see the you know U.S. stocks staging a monstrous rally yesterday. And, uh, and that's you know can be jarring to the, uh, to the uninitiated viewer. And uh, we saw very similar dynamics in the pandemic. In the dark days of the pandemic, the market was roaring, um, even as the news kept getting worse. This really uh, falls into the playbook that you typically categorize as sell the rumor, buy the fact. And this uh, is the uh, basically, <laughs> or buy the, buy the rumor, sell the fact. And, uh, and it's essentially the anticipation of an event. Is worse than the actual event. The uh, the bottoming out process in previous episodes of geostrategic turmoil like the Gulf War and so forth, equity markets tend to bottom out at the onset of real hostilities. And, uh, and that's what we saw yesterday. Uh, markets are trying to you know, dip buyers, as they say, are trying to uh, get ahead of this rebound. There's an expectation that the US and the Western allies didn't Drop the hammer on sanctions, Uh, although they they did say that they could tighten them in the in the future, but they haven't done it yet. uh, Russia is already talking about negotiated peace, some negotiations, that sort of stuff, a cessation of hostilities. There's a hope that the shooting ends relatively quickly. Uh, It doesn't then start knocking over dominoes in Eastern Europe, and it remains relatively contained. And as you know as threadbare and pathetic as whatever puppet regime they put in, it's still a, an uneasy piece and things are a little bit better, uh, than, uh, than, you know, the bullets flying and, and, and bombs sailing through the air. So this is your typical investor playbook buy at the sound of cannons. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's certainly possible that, that, uh, we'll see things get worse before they get better. Uh, but the forward-looking posture of, of financial markets is such that people are looking for uh, looking for, for uh, entries into into some of these stocks.
0: Yeah, it's, I, let me ask you. It, it seems that the, the Ukrainian military is much more competent and larger than w- when we went through this with Crimea. They, they didn't really have much going on, and, and so far they, they seem to be holding up pretty well against the, the Russian forces.
3: Yeah. I mean, in Crimea in 2014, we always have to remember also the country was literally in the middle of a revolution and didn't actually have a Government, the president had fled to Russia at that time, so a unified response was pretty difficult. Um, you have a very different, um, you know, a more unified response this time. I think you know I'm I'm no expert on the Ukrainian military, but it looks like the biggest challenge is Ukraine essentially lacks any long-range weapons, so the Russians are able to hit Ukrainian targets from far away. And the Ukrainians have no ability to respond back but it does look like whenever it comes to the more hand to hand combat you've definitely seen some moments of st- uh, where they've stood out you know i think the reports who knows how much is true in the fog war but last night uh russian military or paramilitary troopers had landed at the kiev airport and seized it and your para- your paratroopers are normally your elite units and then the ukrainians at least temporarily retook the airport and you know which was um you know a little a bright spot for them in this fighting but again i think you know long term you know they're they're just outmatched outspent and at the end of the day what people have said is true is despite financial aid despite some weapon transfers there's nobody fighting on the ukrainian side except the ukrainians um you know and russia is just bigger
2: just to, I want to want to question the uh, some of the lead up to this obviously Strat and what we've heard from a lot of military experts, geostrategic thinkers, and so forth, commentators, less erudite commentators as well, that Putin was engaging in something of a bluff. The massive buildup of troops on the border was a show of force, but the ultimate goals would be more limited, a prizing away of the uh, of the two uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, regions in the east, and you know call it a day, and uh, and and then. You know, <laughs> you know, count your count your count, count it as a victory, um, and uh, and part of the reason seemed to be because the the expectation was that a full scale invasion of Ukraine, installation of puppet government, and holding the territory is like really really hard and is going to be a an enormous expenditure of over time of blood and treasure and. You know, there was a thought that this is, you know, such a such a riverboat gambler kind of move on a on a geostrategic level that he couldn't possibly be thinking about doing it. And of course, that's that's exactly what he did. What what is your what is your, what was your assessment going into this, and what do you think the uh, the, the next steps are? Is, is this is is this going to be as you know? This this may be the easy part. <laughs> taking over Kiev and putting in a puppet government.
3: So, to be completely transparent, I would have put myself sort of in the same boat. If I were putting odds, I would say, you know, he would have taken the Eastern separatist regions and then stopped there. I mean, if you look at it on paper, it doesn't look like a great idea, right? If we want to take an analogy that um, we might be a little uncomfortable with, but think about the US invasion of Iraq um, and our occupation. The U.S. military budget is, I think, 12 times bigger than the Russian military budget. Our economy is something like 12 to 20 times bigger than the U.S. economy. Our population is three times bigger than the U.S. economy. And think about all the time, treasure, and like just willpower that it took for our occupation of Iraq and how badly that hurt us politically, economically, militarily. Ukraine is bigger geographically, bigger population-wise, so it's like on paper, this looks like a crazy move, probably because it is a crazy move. I think ultimately what happened is Putin's bluff was getting called a lot more than he was comfortable with. And at that point, he either has to walk away or show that you can't call his bluff. And I think my, my take on this from the very beginning is that this is a domestic play, not a foreign policy goal play. And so he couldn't let his, call, his bluff get called. Because um, if you look at Russia's underlying economic performance, it is essentially a failed state. You know, as I think our own Tony Fratto pointed out in a tweet over the weekend, Russia's population is 100 million more than the state of New York, but its economy is the same size. If you look at GDP growth, it's actually down over the last 10 years. If you look at per capita income, it's down over the last 10 years. Demographically, they're in decline. And think about when was the last time you went out to the store or on Amazon and bought a Russian-made product? Has it ever happened? Right. So like outside of energy exports, they are a non-competitor in the global economy. So I think when you add all those things up, combined with the fact that there is no free press, that there's no free expression, no free elections, that Putin needed something that the country could rally around, or at least make it us versus them. He could rally the world against them. And when Ukraine and NATO called his bluff he had to go all in. And I think this is all in move.
1: Let me ask this Stratton, and um, we've hinted at it a little bit, but reports are breaking as we're taping this that the Kremlin is ready to go back to the negotiating table with um, Ukraine and and the rest of its allies. This I don't want to oversimplify foreign policy here, but the full invasion of Ukraine, I mean, is this really a move just so when he does negotiate he falls back and keeps the two regions he wants and calls it a win at home, and we sort of on the Western Hemisphere have to accept it to get him out of the rest of the country.
3: I think it's more than that. I think it's so he can have a full dictat of the Ukrainian government, of their foreign policy, um, and essentially, I think um, there have already been reports saying that they're going to require them to demilitarize, essentially have no, no military force whatsoever. So I think it's it's more than just the eastern regions, which will definitely stay de facto independent. Um, who knows if they will annex them into Russia like they did with Crimea? Um, but I think it's much it's much more than that. It's essentially, you know, in the most basic definition of a puppet state, to turn Ukraine into a puppet state.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry that that's his goal. But uh, I guess if I'm asking you to predict if we do go to the negotiating table and we get a ceasefire and he backs off a little bit, what does he take away as even a little win? Cause I assume we won't let him do the whole puppet state of, of Ukraine.
3: What's to stop us. I mean, or sorry. What's to stop him. I mean, I think he, I think he, that's with the occupation of the country. I think that's what he walks away with um, is the whole puppet state. I mean, cause he is, again, he is making a gamble that we're not going to engage militarily between two nuclear powers, which I think is right, because that is obviously a huge escalation. Right. And short of that, we can impose additional sanctions, economic sanctions, travel restrictions, but we can't force them to leave.
1: Yeah, that's the big red line that, that Biden's drawn. Okay. What um, about the, uh, just
2: a last question, Stratton, yeah. uh, the... If he's gone into if he's gone into Ukraine and and, and achieves his at least near term aims, then if you're a non NATO country in the Baltics or a Stan over there, what are, what are you thinking? Are you are you next? Is this uh, is this the pattern of behavior? Domino theory.
3: I would say if you look at the former Soviet republics, they're with with Ukraine now. Um, they're pretty much, pretty clearly either in the pro-Russia camp or NATO members, and there's nobody left in between. I mean, we should forget, we always think about, um, Georgia, but let's also not forget that Russian, Russia has forces in the disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They have Russian forces in the disputed area in Moldova. They recently went in as air quotes for our listeners, peacekeepers in Kazakhstan. And then they have military agreements with all of the, the rest of the Central Asian republics. So I don't think there's anybody else who's sort of in the, the gray neutral zone. Um, everybody else has made their choice. And I think the countries that for what there are historic economic ties as members, both former of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. But I also think they realistically look, you know, if you're Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan, you don't think NATO is coming to your rescue. So you would rather put your chips in with Russia and manage them than what happened to Georgia and now Ukraine.
0: What about on European energy policy? Is everything changing now? Like, is it an opportunity for the U.S. to just ramp up, you know, get natural gas and, and oil production and start exporting it up there? <laughs>
3: I mean if this isn't a wake up call to European energy yeah. policy and I mean and as a knock on US energy policy I don't know what is I, if there's any silver lining on this it's maybe that we will take you know the the european and the global dependence on russian fossil fuels much more seriously and speed up the transition away from those cuz ultimately that is the biggest you know economic lever that they have to play and the geopolitical lever that they have to play, play frankly cuz
1: That's it. All right. Let's take a a short break there. Um, We'll come back, talk a little bit about what else is going on this week and what we can look forward to uh, next week. We'll be right back.
2: HBS is hiring full-time public affairs associates and analysts. We're seeking entry-level associates and analysts to join our dynamic team. Associates have immediate client exposure and opportunities for professional development while working in a fun, fast-paced, and challenging environment. Recent graduates or applicants with up to three years of postgraduate work experience are encouraged to apply. Learn more and apply today at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash careers.
1: Uh, we're back with the HPS Macrocast. Um, great discussion with Stratton on uh, what's happening over in Russia and Ukraine. John, question for you. Um, we're, we're coming up on the March Fed meetings pretty soon. Um, a lot of folks think they're going to raise at least a quarter, if not a uh, half basis point. Um, what, if any, implications for the Fed's decision-making does, does this global issue uh, have on them?
2: Yeah, just uh, for, for the record, Brendan and I have been uh, in the 25 basis point camp in in the March meeting. We think that it's not in keeping with the center of the committee to do a shock and awe, it looks probably a little panicked. Um, Yeah. And, uh, and to the, although Fed speakers came out yesterday uh, and, uh, and that was uh, Cleveland Fed president Mester. uh, We had uh, Atlanta Fed president Bostic and others coming out, um, Barkin in Richmond, basically acknowledging the risks of the, the, that are associated with this geopolitical catastrophe, uh, but basically focusing still on their, you know, sticking to their knitting, right? The inflation risks are job one. And, uh, and you know, these the risks that are associated with Russia, Ukraine, as we've seen, are sort of both sides. Obviously, they can have growth consequences, uh, consumer, uh, you know, consumer concerns, that sort of stuff around Europe and, and so on and so forth. But it's also inflationary. Uh, in that it boosts asset, uh, it boosts commodity prices, energy prices in particular. We've also seen wheat prices soaring uh, and uh, to multi-year highs. And that's really, you know, the way that the, the Fed hasn't distinguished between supply shock and geopolitically driven price increases and, you know, organic inflation. They've been confronting a, you know, sort of monolithic inflation menace at this point. And so I think it's probably too early in the uh, in the tightening cycle for them to start making those distinctions. Uh, And uh, but, you know, they'll they'll nod to the risks, but they'll start out with, uh, we think, a 25 basis point. And uh, and next week, actually, Powell's in front of the Senate Banking Committee. So we're going to get some updated thinking. Yeah. Next week has a has a fair amount going on.
1: Yeah, sure does. Um, and we didn't even get into where they are on the nominations, but um, we'll have to save that for next week. Uh, Brendan, what, what else going on next week?
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, OPEC also has their monthly meeting. So <laughs> timely on that front. Uh, and then on the data front, we get uh, the the February uh, non-farm payroll report to be very, very important. Um, and then the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia and Canada both have um, Meetings uh, to on their interest rates.
2: Yeah, just a word on oil. There's also the the U.S. officials have said that the end of February is really crunch time for negotiations with the Iran nuclear deal. I think the Iranians said the same thing, and uh, clearly the incentive to get a deal uh, is is upped by the current circumstance because of the interest of the Biden administration and the Western world in general of getting more. Oil supply on the market, and an Iran nuclear deal is one way to do that—to uh, get Iran's currently sanctioned uh, oil supplies back flowing into global markets. Is that going to be the decisive factor in the talks? I wouldn't think so, uh, but it's certainly a—it's uh, certainly focused minds. If there's something here that has been restraining upside in uh, in in global oil prices, the prospect of an Iran nuclear deal over the next couple of weeks is is one of those headwinds on it. So, uh, so that's one to watch as well. OPEC, OPEC plus has been, you know, steady as she goes. Uh, It hasn't reacted uh, to, you know, either of the, uh, you know, upside and downside risks uh, in recent months, just sticking with the 400,000 barrels per day increase in uh, OPEC plus in the cartel production month by month. This is deciding for April uh, this Mm -hmm. coming week. And we expect them to do basically the same thing, Uh, you know, just when when in doubt, when all the uncertain in the face of the uncertainty, just stick with the plan. The reality is they're not hitting those targets anyway. They're having uh, supply problems in a lot of the OPEC uh, countries, disruptions and, you know, just faulty uh, production uh, and, uh, and and lagging the schedules. And Saudi Arabia and some of the others that can make it up haven't been willing to. And so, you know, the, the headline number of what they decide to pump is less important than what's actually happening behind the scenes uh, these days in OPEC. Right.
1: All right, guys, um, I think we have to leave it there. Uh, I just want to, again, thank Stratton for coming on. Um, really serious topic, important time. So having your expertise was incredibly helpful to our listeners. We, we appreciate it. And John and Brendan, thank you for, for tolerating another guest hosting job by, by yours truly. Um, we'll let Tony take his day job back next week. Um, but thank you all for listening. You can um, find us online at hamiltonpoicestrategies.com or follow along on Twitter at HPS Insights. As always, um, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.
0: Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.